Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and then my song's gon' break through like a running back Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me as always is my friend, my colleague, my neighbor, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. Now, for everybody listening at home, whether you're out running, you're in the car, you're doing some chores, we are going to test your resolve tonight because we have an action-packed, possibly two or three hour megapod because there's just that much news to get to. But before we get there, you know, it's Canada Day. If it's uh, July 1st, wherever you're listening, that's why we're dropping this a day early. And a couple of quick shout outs before I pass it over to my good friend, Mr. Mark Daly. One, want to give Mr. Nicholas Latifi a happy birthday. He just turned 27. Happy birthday to Mr. Nico Rosberg. And for all of you that are following the social adventures of Mr. Nico Hulkenberg, congratulations to him. He just got married this week as well. So congratulations all around. My friend, how the heck are you? I'm good, man. I'm doing really good. Uh, like you say, it's a almost Canada Day long weekend here. It's been super crazy busy for months and months and months, it seems. So I'm just really looking forward to kicking back and enjoying all the, the festivities, barbecues, fireworks, hopefully maybe a little bit of sun uh, this weekend, but uh, we'll wait and see. You know, we were talking a couple of days ago and it's something that people have been asking for for a very long time, which is, hey, when are you going to produce some merch? When are you going to produce some merch? I'd love a t-shirt. I'd love a hoodie. And you know, it's one of those things I think that people say, but we've done some analysis in the past and we've talked to some shows that produce merchandise and their, their, their perspective is usually like, look, at best 1% of your audience will buy merch. And I think from our perspective, it was always a matter of, hey, if we're going to do it, we want to do it right. We want to do good quality stuff, but we also don't want to go through the work effort of producing this if we're only going to sell seven t-shirts and a couple of hats, right? So we did a little bit of a, a deep dive and we did some quizzing of our audience and we got a sense that, hey, there could be a pretty good base out there. So as mm-hmm. we announced on Twitter a couple of days ago, Mr. Daly and I are exploring, we're exploring the possibility of doing a one-time limited run of Scuderia F1 hoodies that would drop this fall. Now, the one thing that I want to stress or a couple of things that I want to stress is we're not doing this to make money. In fact, we expect to break even if that, but what we want to be able to do at best, which is the (laughs) podcast in a nutshell, but what we want to do is create the best possible product. I mean, to be totally honest, we could have a store of merch up tomorrow. We just throw the JPEG of our logo up on one of these websites, get them to spit out print screen t-shirts, hats, and hoodies. But what we're thinking about doing is a much better quality hoodie, fully embroidered patches on the sleeves, 
big crest across the front and possibly something on the back. So stay tuned. It's something people have been asking for for many years, and I've always been kind of cool to it, but I've kind of warmed up partly out of inspiration because there's a local YouTube company here in the lower mainland called Linus Tech Tips. And they Mm -hmm. are one of the biggest YouTube channels, to be totally honest, and their focus is technology. But I've kind of been convinced of their strategy, which is we want to give back to the community through our merch. And by that, they mean just the best quality merch possible. So we've got a couple of local suppliers that we're looking at here in the BC Lower Mainland, so Greater Vancouver. And we're excited to give you some updates in the uh, in the future. Yeah, that's awesome. Put me down for one. I mean, I didn't get in on the Fantasy League this year, so I'm definitely... <laughs> I was, dude, I was going to say, I was going to say... <laughs> so yeah, I, I got to get in at least a, a hoodie for my own podcast here. So yeah, keep keep me up to date, dude. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So, hey, I, I noticed here in the show outline that we got some pretty cool stats here for some of the, the, the head-to-head matchups uh, within the teams, uh, you know, with, with the teammates. So why don't we, first of all, before we get into the news, and there is just a ton of news this week. It's, wow, it's crazy. is there like, ever... Sometimes, you know, you get between races, it kind of really goes kind of quiet, especially when you get like a week or two in between races, because you remember we had Canada two weeks ago. Right. Especially when you, and that's a bit of a, a luxury these days in modern Formula One. You don't get too many weekends off in between, and usually when you do, it's almost like a mini break. It's like the the news just kind of like goes off a cliff, and it's super quiet for a couple of days, but it has been anything but that. But we'll get to that in a moment. First of all, Mark, why don't you break down some of these numbers of uh, qualifying results head-to-head uh, up and down the, 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 the paddock, up and down the grid Yeah, so here. this stat comes to you from Formula Stat Analysis on Reddit. This is another one of my very thorough deep dive research projects. I went to the Formula One subreddit, but from Formula Stat Analysis, he does a breakdown of qualifying head-to-head, so teammate v. teammate so far this year. The first stat, which is uh, very alarming, is that Canadian drivers year-to-date have been out-qualified by their teammates 14 to 2. Which is which is horrifying and very disappointing for us, especially going into Canada today. But you know, at a high level, you look at this. Um, Verstappen is outqualified Perez six three. Leclerc eight to one versus his teammate Carlos Sainz. Uh, wow. Russell is up five four on Hamilton. Lando Norris is up seven two on Daniel Ricciardo. Uh, Alonso up six three on Esteban Ocon. Bottas up seven two on his rookie teammate. Gasly up six three versus Sonoda. Sonoda. Uh, Vettel up six to one versus Stroll. Magnussen up seven to two. Two versus MSC. I'm actually a little bit surprised it's not a bigger deficit. And then Alex Albon absolutely crushing his teammate eight to one in qualifying so far this year. Ooh, ouch! That is uh, <laughs> that. That's a tough one. That's uh, not looking good for 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 Nick Latifi. Anyways, wow. Why don't we take a look now at some of the. Um, well, what do we have next? Oh, I guess it's uh, race results uh, head-to-head or team battles and race positions. So looking at that, so this excludes races with one or both of the drivers out. So obviously that happened uh, a couple of times for Ferrari right. and for um, Red Bull as well. So looking at the the race results, you have uh, Verstappen leading Perez 5-1, to one, Leclerc 3-2 to over Carlos Sainz. So, I mean, almost fairly even in the Ferrari team, but um, they've had a bit of drama this year, obviously. This is a bit of a shocker. After nine races, George Russell's come out on top over his Mercedes teammate, Lewis Hamilton, seven-time world champion, Lewis Hamilton, nonetheless, 7-2. 
OMG, that's that's a big one. You would have thought, if anything, it would be the other way around. Uh, over McLaren, uh, Lando Norris is on top of uh, Danny Ricardo, four to three. It um, at Alpine, it is Esteban Ocon, five to two, uh, ahead of. Uh, uh, I was going to say. Uh, I'll- completely losing it here i need some more coffee over fernando alonso uh over at alfa romeo uh valtteri bottas is a five nil over uh, guan yu joe or joe guan yu uh pierre gasly three to two over his alfa Tauri teammate yuki sonoda uh hulkenberg and vettel are leading lance stroll because remember hulk uh, substituted in for vettel for a couple of races at the beginning of the year four to two over lance stroll at uh, over at Haas, it's two to two, dead even between K Mag and Mick Schumacher. We should just call him Schumacher Junior or Shuju. Why don't we just call him Shuju? Is that no, that, that doesn't rhyme? It doesn't go very good. And then again at Williams, it was uh, Nicholas Latifi coming out for worse in qualifying compared to his teammate Alex Albon, eight to one in qualifying in the race. It is just as bad, six to one, uh, that Albon has outperformed his Williams teammates. So there you go. All right. So, Mark, where do we want to dive into first? There is, uh, well, let, let's talk about uh, Pierre Gasly, or do we want to do the bit of the unpleasant business first? Let, let, let's talk about the the Lewis Hamilton, Nelson Piquet right. uh, thing. First of all, let, let's just get that out of the way, because unfortunately in 2022, people can still cannot be nice towards and or civil towards uh, one another. And this uh, unpleasant stuff still keeps uh, coming up. So this goes back to a uh, comments that Nelson Piquet, a three-time world champion, drove for Williams, drove for uh, several uh, Formula One teams throughout his career in the late 80s, early 90s thereabouts. And uh, so he said uh, a word that um, is obviously very, very offensive. You know, he's walked back his comments, but these go back to a podcast, uh, a Brazilian podcast. So it was made late last year or something like that. But it's it's taken a while for the, these comments to really sort of surface and really sort of um i would say explode a little bit into the the, the mainstream uh, consciousness now pk's kind of walked back the comments uh, saying well you know it, it's it's a word that we use all the time in in brazilian portuguese it doesn't mean what it really means or it's how it's been translated so at best in, in my mind he comes off as completely oblivious and offensive and at worst is something a lot worse than that but again you know it's just uh, it's I don't know why we still have to be dealing with these things. So, I mean, the the way that it was, mm. you know, it was condemned immediately throughout uh, the, the Formula One uh, paddock. I mean, uh, Formula One said, uh, discriminatory or racist language is unacceptable in any form, has no part in society. Lewis is an incredible ambassador for our sport and deserves respect. His tireless efforts to increase diversity and inclusion are a lesson to many and something we are committed to af- at F1. Now, Nelson Piquet himself had to say, quote, I would like to clear up the story circulating in the media about a comment I made in an interview last year. What I said was ill thought out and I make no defense for it, but I will clarify that the term used is one that is widely and historically been used colloquially in Brazilian Portuguese as a cinnamon for guy or a person. It was never intended to offend. I would never use the word I have been accused of in some translations. I strongly condemn the suggestion that the word uh, used by me uh, used by me, pardon me, with the aim of belittling a driver because of his skin color. I apologize wholeheartedly to anyone that was effective, including Lewis, who is an incredible driver, but the translation in some media is that is now circulating on social media is not correct. Discrimination has no place in F1 society, and I'm happy to clarify my, uh, clarify my thoughts in that respect, end quote. 
And so I don't know uh, what else you can really want to add to this. So why don't I've got a, a, a quote here or a little clip from uh, Matt Bishop, who's the director of comms at Aston Martin Cognizant F1. I think I got that all uh, correctly. Aramco. So it, uh, Aramco. Yeah, Aramco. Aramco. I knew I forgot something. Anyways, yep. Matt uh, summed up nicely an interview with uh, Sky Sports. So let's just take a quick listen to that. What Nelson Piquet Sr. said was completely unacceptable and was rightly called out and roundly called out. And I think that's the important point is almost everyone in Formula One and certainly every team just said this is not acceptable. We will not put up with this. And now, of course, he has issued some degree of an apology. Uh, But I think the point that we, if we can take any positive from it, is that it was condemned absolutely universally. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't know. Do you want to add anything else to what uh, what Matt was saying, Mark? Yeah, so a couple of things, and, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity because this is a topic that I've been pretty uh, heated up about this week. Well, a lot of people did come out and voice support for Lewis, which was great to see, including Aston Martin, Mercedes, Ferrari, McLaren, Alpine, Formula One, the FIA. Very few, if any, people actually mentioned Nelson Piquet by name. And, and I would have, I would like to have seen people be a little bit more explicit in their criticism because the only reason people were forthcoming with support at all was because there was a need given the fact that Mr. Lewis Hamilton was assaulted through incredibly racist verbiage that came from Nelson Piquet senior on that podcast last year. The, the other comment that I'll make as well is that. Nelson Piquet's statement is a non-apology apology. In, in essence, it's one of those apologies that, like, look, I'm sorry that you're upset, not, you know what, I'm incredibly apologetic because I said something that was, in fact, incredibly offensive. I didn't, you know what I mean? Like, it's a non-apology apology. So I think that's a bit of a mess. And the other thought I had here, too, is, and Andrew Benson actually reported via Twitter shortly before we started the show, that sources in F1 have told BBC Sport that Nelson PK will not be allowed back into the paddock following this controversy. Mm. And quite frankly, nor, sh- nor should he be. And, you know, I tried to draw some comparisons within the world of North American sports. And, you know, the Do- Donald Sterling saga from April of 2014 probably isn't the perfect comp, but I think it was a great exercise in testing the integrity of, at the time, the brand new commissioner of the NBA and Adam Silver. And for those of you that don't remember, um, at the time, Donald Sterling, who had long been accused of being one, a a racist slumlord um, throughout the Los Angeles area, the billionaire owner of the Los Angeles Clippers NBA team, he was recorded making some comments to his, at the time, uh, mistress, V. Stiviano. And he said, and I quote, Um, This is what he said to her. It bothers me a lot that you want to broadcast that you're associating with black people. You can sleep with black people. You can bring them in. You can do whatever you want. But the little I ask of you is not to bring them to my game. So at the time... Uh, At the time, Adam Silver was tested and he was a brand new commissioner and he effectively 
banned this individual from the NBA, banned him from NBA facilities, banned him from NBA arenas, and forced him effectively to sell the team. And I'm hoping that Formula One takes a similar measure here, which is we have absolutely no tolerance for this type of language in 2022. And I think that what Andrew Benson is reporting will hopefully come to fruition and that he will be banned from the paddock. Now, the one thing that I would add, and I I certainly don't want to stir up that that emotional kind of pot of frustration, but he says that it was universally condemned. There was one specific team whose criticism was not felt today and not seen. And that was obviously the Red Bull team. And insiders within Red Bull were very clear that they weren't to issue a statement on this. And it's not entirely clear why it would have been nice to have seen all the teams and all of the drivers up and down the grid express support for Lewis Hamilton. But while Matt Bishop is right, that teams did reach out. um, Nobody mentioned Nelson PK by name. And certainly there was one team at least that didn't, um, didn't vocalize their support for Lewis Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, before we move on to uh, to the next topic, which unfortunately is uh, still somewhat similar, I just uh, got another clip here from Sky Sports News, and this is just uh, some comments made by Ferrari driver uh, Charles Leclerc. Let's have a listen to that. Well, Leclerc tweeted this. Knowing Lewis since I arrived in Formula One, he has always been extremely respectful to me and everyone that he meets. Those values should be the standard towards anybody around the world. The comments made towards Lewis should not be tolerated and we should continue to push for a more diverse and inclusive sport. We need to remove discriminatory behaviour and racist language in any form from not just our sport, but our society as well. Yeah, 100%. And the other thing, too, just going back to the non-apology, is I thought it was uh, very interesting the way they worded saying that Lewis is an incredible driver. You know, no, no, nothing about you know, Lewis being an incredible Human person. Human being. Yep. Exactly. So uh, I, I thought that, um, yeah, it was uh, very much, uh, like you say, it was uh, an apology without really uh, apologizing. Anyways, it's it's just unpleasant in this day and age that uh, things like this continue to happen when obviously the, the vast majority of people everywhere agree that such uh, behavior and uh, such uh, statements are completely offside and unacceptable for, for any reason at any time anywhere. Okay, so let's uh, move along. This one is still somewhat uh, similar, but uh, we we talked about it uh, last week, uh, and this was with uh, Red Bull driver Yuri Vips. So, Mark, uh, you've been on top of this one as well, so why don't you uh, give us a little bit more background on this one? Last week, we had talked about the fact that Yuri Vips, who is a young and reportedly very talented driver within the Red Bull Driver Academy, uh, he had been recorded, I think, on a Twitch stream saying the N-word not once, but twice in the presence of another young driver. Um, At the time, he was suspended. And yesterday, Oracle Red Bull Racing released a statement saying, following its investigation into an online incident involving Yuri Vips, Oracle Red Bull Racing has terminated Yuri's contract as its test and reserve driver. The team do not condone any form of of racism. Now, where this does get a little bit interesting is that while Red Bull appropriately took the appropriate measures and and Yuri Vips is clearly going to feel the consequences of this for for the rest of his life, his Formula 2 team, High Tech Grand Prix Racing, who he competes with, has elected not to terminate his agreement. So he will continue to compete in Formula 2. Obviously, his pathway, his his uh his his road to Formula One is far, far more cloudy based on 
um, based on the fact that his agreement with Red Bull was terminated. But it is very interesting that Formula his Formula 2 team has chosen to retain him. Now, Formula 2 in response to the fact that High Tech Grand Prix has elected to keep him, issued their own shocking statement. And their statement is the following. Following the recent incident involving Yuri Vips, Formula 2 would like to reaffirm that the use of racist or discriminatory language cannot be tolerated in any environment. High Tech Grand Prix's decision today is surprising and not one we would have taken. We will monitor the situation carefully with them to ensure that such behavior is properly addressed. So it's very, very curious that a driver is being retained by a team in Formula 2 and that Formula 2 themselves issue a statement disagreeing with the the decision that that Formula 2 team has made. And what's even more shocking about this is the fact that Formula 2 has the ability to suspend him from racing in that series. So if Formula 2 really disagrees and finds it quote-unquote surprising that they've elected to retain him, they can do something about it. So for the time being at least, Yuri Vips, no longer a member of the Red Bull Drivers Academy, but is still a gainfully employed driver in Formula 2, which is a little bit disappointing or a lot disappointing. Yeah, 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 100%. Anyways, uh, nothing further to add, uh, to add to that one. I, I want to take a quick break now, and we'll come back. On the other side, we'll actually talk about some pleasant things, and ta- including uh, Pierre Gasly's brand-new contract with the uh, Scuderia Alpha Tauri, and uh, a bunch of other things, including Honda apparently coming back into F1 after leaving F1 last year when they said that they were never going to come back. So if you're confused, I'm confused. So we're all confused, and it's all good. So let's uh, pause for a short message from our sponsors, and hopefully on the flip side, we'll come back a little bit less confused than we are right now. (laughs) So don't go away. We'll catch you on the flip side. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
All right. Well, welcome back to the podcast. As always, up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark here. Finally, time to get past some of the unpleasant news that was uh, floating around there and still reverberating around the Formula One world uh, this week. And let's talk now about Alpha Tauri driver Pierre Gasly, who has uh, reportedly extended his contract with Alpha Tauri until 2023. And it sort of makes sense. I mean, there was no real no real options for him to go anywhere else and really upgrade from where he is at the moment. So the uh, Red Bull team proper, the which would be the natural progression up through the the, uh, the Red Bull Driver Academy or Team Funnel, whatever you want to call it, would be Red Bull proper. And of course, uh, they've uh, got uh, Max Verstappen under a long-term contract until, was it, 2025? Sergio Perez just signed a new contract uh, several weeks ago. So that's uh, you know not an option. Ferrari's not an option. Mercedes is not an option. As far as we know, uh, we would expect that Lewis Hamilton w- would come back uh, next year. George is under contract for, we think, uh, a couple of years. So, I mean, the only other options are similar type teams uh, that he's already competing against. So, uh, Alpha Tauri is currently seventh in the Constructors uh, Championship. They're behind um, R- uh, Alpha Romeo, Alpine, McLaren. All those teams uh, reportedly have their their drivers all under contract, and I guess the only option, should it come, would be as if McLaren would do the unthinkable and pull the pin on the Danny Ricardo experiment. And you know, I'm not entirely convinced one way or another that they're going to do that. So I think if you're Pierre Gasly, just kind of looking around. Like, what choice do I really have uh, at, at the moment but to maybe sit here for another year and hope uh, by the time we get to the end of 2023 that some of these other seats open up and then maybe I can get myself out of the Red Bull system? Because I still think that he might be better served if he could get out of that, out of Red Bull and into to somewhere else. But options limited at the moment, Mark. A couple of considerations. And you know, you and I speculated a few weeks ago, but the fact that maybe McLaren would be a good option if ultimately they bought out the final year of Daniel Ricardo's contract and sent him packing due to his lack yep. of performance, really, since he's arrived at that team with the exception of Monza last year, that that might be an option for him. And I would presume that somebody within the McLaren organization signaled to his camp that that probably wasn't going to happen. And if that McLaren wasn't going to open up. I don't know what other opportunities would exist out there. I think obviously Alpine Renault is naturally a good fit, especially from a marketing perspective, but it seems it seems that at least in the short term, there's a desire to keep Fernando Alonso around, especially since his form has been pretty strong this year. So I think it's a it's a, a decent, I think it's a decent situation for him. Obviously, I think he would prefer to have some additional security. And you see drivers like um, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz and Sergio Perez that are getting these two and sometimes three-year deals that a one-year deal is, isn't is ideal. And we talk about the fact that, hey, you know what? He's committed to Alpha Tauri now for 2023, and then he can kind of survey the landscape in 2024. But if he has a bad 2023 and his form doesn't improve this year, there may not be a lot of options for him out there. It feels like that win at Monza a couple of years ago is in the distant, distant past. And last year, he was fine. This year, his form is significantly degraded, although, of course, part of that could be adjusting to the new car and the car that they built for him and his teammate, Yuki Tsunoda. But ultimately, you know, I don't know what other options were out there so it seems mm-hmm. like it's a it's a good short-term deal for him and it isn't a long-term commitment for for Alpha Tauri either the one thing that I would add and Tim Haraney and I were talking about this last week when we did an emergency podcast on this topic is we expect and you know 
engine. So we'll get to this a little bit later, but it's now highly speculated that Red Bull will announce on July 7th at uh, the Red Bull ring in Austria of the partnership with Porsche. And it's not yet clear whether that Porsche relationship will extend to Alpha Tauri. And if it doesn't, it may extend to another manufacturer who may return to Formula One. So it's not yet clear what any of these other parties want to do with those drivers. So his future at that team may not be within his control anyways. There may be parties involved that aren't currently functioning in F1, but maybe soon. Yeah, well, it also kind of leads into what I was hinting at before the break there, because apparently Honda, who announced, uh, well, I guess it was about a year and a half ago now, that after the 2021 season, they were going to withdraw from Formula One. They were going to con- or concentrate solely on the road cars and the electrification of their road car fleet, which, you know, that was their thing. And that's uh, it made a lot of sense at the time. But as we got closer to the end of the year and that exciting finale between uh, Red Bull and Mercedes and Lewis and Max and, of course, all the drama that uh, that occurred at Yas Marina back in December, which, you know, is a bit of a trigger event. So let's not go there. Uh, but the, the point is, is that they they've kind of walked back a little bit that um, they're. I guess their decision uh, to completely withdraw from Formula One, because now the engine format is frozen into 2026. They're still more heavily involved in the production of these uh, power units for Alpha Tauri and for Red Bull, even though they're branded as Red Bull powertrains or RBPT. And the interesting thing is that uh, that Red Bull do not have any rights when it comes to the IP that Honda has with that uh, that that power unit. So basically, I mean, we, we speculated about it for a long time is maybe they're going to use it as a base. They're going to take over that IP and build their own engines after 2026 over the off season, over the preceding number of months. That's, uh, you know, come to light that that is not, in fact, the case. They're basically just uh, plugging this Honda engine into the back, rebranding it. And then um, they got to come up with something different for 2026. But it's, it's, it's interesting now because there's a story on this Japanese website called, uh, called F1-gate.com. And uh, they, uh, they referenced some comments made by Michael Schmidt, who's a correspondent for German publication Automotor und Sport. And he talks about a bunch of things, mostly about Audi and Porsche and the fact that uh, they're, they're unhappy that Formula One's really been dragging their heels in their eyes, uh, you know, really committing and, and announcing this engine formula for 2026 and beyond. <clears throat> Anyways, Schmidt goes on to say that he really believes that uh, that that Honda could announce a full return to Formula One in 2026, and believes that uh, they could uh, team up with, with Alpha Tauri at that point, which I guess they already are to a certain degree with the uh, the, the whole rebranded uh, Honda Power Unit in the back. But he's even speculation that Honda might even step in and take over uh, Alpha Tauri, and who knows, uh, maybe rebrand it as a Honda Works team again, which we've seen them do uh, before in the past. And uh, I know that we talked about it just you and I in the last uh, week or so on the show here and i know that uh, you and i are not real big fans of the whole junior team sister teams b teams whatever you want to call it and um you know if, if that were to happen i don't think it would uh, be be a bad thing 
Not at all. In fact, this story makes me very, very excited. We're talking about the prospect of having six different engine manufacturers in the sport of Formula One, which is incredible. Love it. And it also infers or implies that maybe, maybe Alpha Tauri is spun off from the gigantic Red Bull industrial complex and becomes a much more <laughs> independent team rather than simply a feeder team for the Milton Keynes or t- Milton Keynes squad of, of Red Bull. Now, what's really interesting about this, and you kind of hit on it a couple of seconds ago, is we talked so much the last probably year and a half about the fact that Honda was going to exit and that Red Bull was effectively going to buy their IP and start building their engines in-house in Milton Keynes, which is where their factory is. That's not exactly what's happened. So Red Bull has started up a powertrains division and they've built a facility and they've built reportedly six test beds. Now that team is not developing the current power unit in any way. They are now fully focused on developing a 2026 power unit from scratch. The engines that are in the back of their cars right now are coming from the same Honda factory in Japan where they've come from the last three years. So in essence, Honda is a power unit supplier in all but name. But Because like you said, they're being rebranded, but they are still a Honda power unit that is being developed, maintained, managed, and built and shipped by Honda themselves. So if Honda chose to pivot and reintegrate themselves within the sport for 2026, they still have three, four years of runway to pivot at that factory and start developing the 2026 power unit. And by the way, we still haven't even finalized the formula. Like Nobody's really working on it at this point because they don't really know what they're going to build towards. I think we expect that the internal combustion engine itself will be very similar to the core that's in these cars today. They already have that. They already have an exceptional platform to work from. So it would be a very easy pivot. And of course, the reason they exited the sport, at least this is what's been reported, is the previous board in Tokyo wanted out of the sport. And that decision was made in the early days of their Red Bull relationship. The incoming board wanted to stay, but in the spirit of professional courtesy didn't want to reverse the decision that was made by the board before them. And of course, the exit timing couldn't have been worse because they announced they're leaving in late 2020. They win a driver's championship in 2021. Now, I just pulled together a couple of stats as well because I thought this might be interesting for everybody listening at home. Honda has had four runs in Formula One. They were a works team from 64 to 68. They had a highly successful run as a power unit provider, particularly to McLaren in 83 to 92. In 2000, they entered the sport as an engine supplier to British American Racing. They ultimately bought that team in its entirety, transformed it into Honda. And then at the end of 2008, they exited the sport. Of course, Braun bought the team for a pound, stuck a Mercedes power unit in the back. And of course, the rest is history. They re-entered the sport in 2015 and they exited at the end of 2021. And they have had some tremendous success. So here's a couple of their accomplishments. They have six constructors titles in 86, 87, 88, 89, 90, and 91, and six world drivers championships from 87, 88, 89, 90, 91. And of course, last year with Max Verstappen, they've recorded 89 race wins in their time in Formula One in 200 and 33 podiums. And uh, to your earlier point, based on that story from F1 Gate in Japan, they could be returning possibly as a full-on works team for 2026. And I think that's fabulous. 
But, you know, even if they're not, even if they intend to come back full into Formula One in 26 uh, purely or solely as an engine manufacturer, now's the time to start thinking about it because it's better right. to make that noise now or make that commitment now and decide after they come out with the regs and like, yeah, you know what, maybe we're not going to do that. It's not in our interest rather than to delay it and kick that can further down the road because that's what they did a decade ago. And you kind of, they came in 2014, Mercedes were ready, Ferrari were ready, Renault were ready. And Great then call. Honda Great came back in in 2015 with Honda. They were several years behind everyone else. And that partnership with uh, McLaren at that point was a complete train wreck. I mean, McLaren themselves had some of their own issues, but that that's kind of a little bit aside. I mean, just the engine itself needed a lot more development timing. But by the time that they got into the Red Bull, it was in a far better place. So you know, just from a business point of view, this is the time to, uh, to, to show interest and then decide, okay, this isn't for us. And that's that's perfectly okay. So... It, uh, it certainly is one to to keep an eye on, and I, I really wonder, Mark, uh, wh what are we going to see here? Are we going to see them return as an engine uh, supplier? Are we going to see them as a full-on works team? Or are they going to walk away? I, I think that there's an argument to be made for every single one of those uh, scenarios. I, I really do. I, I can't put my finger on and say, put your money on, on scenario one, two, or three, because I think they're all viable at this point in time. And this is why, and we, we've got the story lined up a little bit later, but this is also why I think that Formula One is really cool on the concept of giving away a grid spot to Michael Andretti. Like, we don't know necessarily the extent to which manufacturers want to get into the sport. We know that Volkswagen's coming with two of their brands. It's now reported in multiple places that Honda wants back. Maybe it's only a matter of time until you get an American manufacturer that wants to enter the sport in Ford or, or Chevrolet. So I don't think they're keen or in a hurry to give away a grid spot for a measly $200 million when maybe we have one of these bigger manufacturers that wants to come back in the sport. And we talked about this last week that Stefano Domenicali even was quoted last week as saying, hey, there's a surprise manufacturer in the wing implying that Honda has vocalized to Formula One to liberate of their intent to reenter the sport. Well, it also kind of really puts a whole uh, Andretti bid to buy Sauber last year into a whole different light because you could see that if you know they, they were really trying to push it through because if they know that uh, that that Formula One is not keen on that, if they know that there's more interest from other parties, they're willing to to jack the price up. It, it just makes sense uh, from from Andretti's point of view. Let's try and get in now. Maybe we make this bid. Maybe we get lucky. Maybe we get a team for three hundred mil rather than. And having to drop a billion dollars or maybe not even be able to get in at all so you you can see why that why they tried it ultimately when the, when this was going around about a year ago that it didn't happen but certainly now that uh, you hear all this uh, the, these other stories and other little bits of rumors that kind of like percolate and bubble up to the surface every few weeks it seems why that uh, deal between andretti and sauber just uh, didn't happen but and drizzy what? drizzy daily i don't know yeah. if it was you i was talking to or if it was tim on his podcast last week but we talked about that exact same thing which is you know sauber could have engaged andretti got a sense or heard that the Volkswagen group was interested. They were clearly capable of paying far more than the Andretti group was. And ultimately Andretti group was kind of forced to walk away because the terms of the deal reportedly changed, which is, Hey, we're going to buy the team. You're going to keep a small stake, but we get a controlling interest to, Hey, we're going to buy a controlling interest, but you control the team. Like it was very weird how it kind of fell apart at the end. And you know, you have to wonder if that was intentional because during negotiations, 
negotiations, it mm-hmm. became clear to Sauber that there was a better deal on the horizon. And that better deal was was the Volkswagen group. And ultimately, and I know our listeners are going to hate hearing this, I have no sympathy for the Andretti group. A Formula One team could have been had for nothing five years ago. Haas paid nothing to enter the sport. If Andretti was really motivated, you could have come in in 15, 16, 17, 18. Why wait now to this explosion of interest to express a desire to enter Formula One when the valuation of the teams are skyrocketing? And ultimately, I think unless Andretti can partner with a an established manufacturer, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. And it was, it was indicated as much last week by a couple of different team principals that, hey, look, if they're serious, they got to bring Chevy, they got to bring Ford with them because then they'll get the attention of a Formula One. You raise a couple of really great points there, Mark. And I think, uh, you know, especially like you're saying that they could have come in four, five, six years ago or whatever it was for a fraction of the price of uh, what it, uh, you know what what they'd be looking at right now but maybe that was part of the uh, the, the the reason that a year ago that they were uh, you know showing so much interest into uh, you know buying Salber Alfa Romeo maybe they knew that maybe they they, they kind of had a panic moment because you that that exactly story with, with like Audi and the VW group and Porsche that that had been around for a long time before that news actually dropped several weeks ago that yeah we're giving the green light to this project we're going in with the uh, both brands in 26 and i kind of wonder you know maybe uh andretti heard those uh, same rumors and then so they tried to do it and then you know i mean that that story was out there quite a bit about a year ago and then like you say all of a sudden everything shifted the the, the landscape changed dramatically right at the end at, at one point it seemed like at least what was coming out and filtering out into the public sphere it sounded like the whole andretti thing was going to be a done deal and like you say all of a sudden it turned around flipped on its head kind of made you wonder if uh, somebody from uh, Wolfsburg at uh, you know VW Group uh, World Headquarters made a couple of uh, well-placed and timely phone calls and said the right thing that, uh, well, you know, uh, we're still quite interested in uh, in Formula One and Andretti is uh, going to uh, give you 300 mil. We'll, we'll give you 500 or 750 or maybe a billion dollars to take over Sauber or whatever it is. So it kind of makes you wonder. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just purely speculating here. I don't have any knowledge I'm, and I wouldn't spread anything con confidential but i wouldn't be surprised if uh, something like that uh, happened but you know talking about other things that are kind of uh, fun to speculate about and talk about and we love talking about the new races and we talked about this one a couple of weeks ago and this was you know i mean it was shocking anytime you hear like uh, any sort of like crazy contract extension in sports for any reason but the fact that uh, that melbourne is now going to host the uh, the Australian Grand Prix now until 2035 is just completely ridiculous. But the story that uh, that came out uh, just uh, earlier this week is that apparently that uh, there was a report from the advertiser in Australia that Australian or sorry South Australian Premier uh, Peter Malinowskis uh, was having secret discussions with the highest levels of Formula One's managements. Uh, uh, arm or division, what do you call it, as recently as April. And then uh, apparently, despite their last minute bid to try and woo Formula One away from uh, Melbourne back to uh, Adelaide, where it was for, for many, many years, he was uh, ultimately uh, told by uh, F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali that it wasn't going to happen. And then shortly thereafter, their hopes uh, to uh, to steal the Australian Grand Prix away from Melbourne and take it back to South Australia was completely kiboshed and blown out of the water. 
water because then Melbourne announced that they'd ex- secured an extension till 2035. I mean, this is political machinations and subterfuge that would, uh, you know, of the highest order. I mean, this is, you know, I mean, obviously with the people involved, there's going to be a lot of upset people, but uh, I have the feeling this would make quite a good uh, good TV show or something, you know? It uh, sounds like there's a little bit of everything in there. This is the funnest stuff to talk about. And first of all, shout out to Philip Amato. He was the one that sent us this story a couple of weeks ago. Maybe last week, you and I were talking about the fact that there was a vicious rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne yep. competing for the rights to host the Australian Grand Prix. And ultimately, Melbourne was successful. But it turns out, like you said, they weren't just competing with Sydney, they were competing with Adelaide as well. And of course, Adelaide hosted the Australian Grand Prix from 85 until 95, at which point it moved to Albert Park in Melbourne, and it's been there ever since. And of course, it's a beautiful location with a gorgeous backdrop. But I think, and I'm going to repeat this quote because I thought it was super spicy, but after finding out that Sydney was unsuccessful in stealing in stealing the Australian Grand Prix away from Melbourne, uh, New South Wales Premier Dominic Pirotet or Protet said, and I quote, it's a loss for Formula One. It's going to be a really disappointing event for years to come, referring <laughs> to the Grand Prix in Melbourne, which of course is a spectacular event and incredibly well supported by businesses in Australia and of course uh, the people that live there and of course all the people that travel to Melbourne to see that race in person. And uh, of course you noted as well that that race is now locked in place until 2035 and they'll be hosting on average the season opener every second year yeah, that's right. I think they had to have written into the deal that they would be guaranteed X number of uh, races, so either as a season opener. At the very least, it's going to be uh, front-loaded at the beginning of the Formula One uh, calendar until 2035. But and yeah, I mean, some great- of that... Interestingly, yep. by the way, I'll just quickly add, some of that is influenced by the timing of Ramadan. So uh, we've oh, learned this okay. week yep. that the 2023 calendar may be pushed up a little bit because they need to make sure they get both races in Bahrain and Jeddah in before March 22nd when Ramadan begins. And then in 2024, it's even earlier. So in 2023 or 2024, I'm trying to get my dates right. In 2024, we'll probably start in Australia and then go to that region. So it looks like in years where it's not convenient from a Ramadan timing perspective, they'll open in Australia. And when Ramadan's a little bit later, they'll open in the Middle East, which is going to influence when the, uh, the dates are. Yeah, great observation. I was also going to say that uh, it's interesting. I mean, not only did you have uh, Adelaide in the mix, but so rightly you pointed out that Sydney was in there as well. But also, I just want to give credit to to, to Philip Amato, uh, our listener, who uh, also sent us some really cool pictures from uh, the Australian Grand Prix from Adelaide way back in the day. And it was uh, really kind of cool to take a look at at his pictures and kind of take a bit of a walk down uh, memory lane. But we've been talking a little bit uh, about some mind-blowing facts and figures another big uh, figure that's being thrown out here is apparently that Formula One this week has now renewed its rights deal in the USA with ESPN through 2025. This is according to the Sports Business uh, Journal, pardon me. And this three-year deal uh, is apparently in the neighborhood of about 70 to, sorry, 75 to 90 million dollars per year for the rights and that's a lot different than what ESPN paid just a couple of years ago back in 2019 when they dropped $5 million per year so $15 million for the three years for uh, for, for the rights to, to, to Formula One so obviously 
things have escalated a wee bit since 2019 in the value of Formula One. And there was a bunch of uh, different uh, people that uh, that were interested, including Amazon, uh, CBS, Comcast, I think was in there. And uh, I think Disney as well, wasn't it? There, there were several really, really big uh, networks reportedly after the, uh, the, the, the rights to Formula One. Shout out to Adam Stern and Sports Business Journal because they were the first to report on this. And of course, every aggregator in the world, including us, picks up on it and talks about it. But I like to give credit where credit is due. The deal is, to your point, exponentially larger than what ESPN is paying today. They're paying in the realm of $5 million, which is nothing. They're going to be paying $75 to $90 million a year for the calendar. And those dates will be split between ABC and ESPN. Of course, ABC and ESPN are both Disney properties. They both fall into the Disney family. I still think that this is a good deal for ESPN. When you consider that it's reported that the next NBA TV deal will be worth between 50 and $70 billion, uh, paying $90 million a year for 22 Formula One races is still a pretty darn good deal. The one thing that I would caution for people in the US that are maybe getting excited is expect to see commercial breaks. The reason the reason why you do not see commercial breaks during your broadcast today is because ESPN is effectively paying nothing for the rights to host those races. They've now got to recoup 75 to $90 million of broadcast rights a year. The only way they're going to be able to do that in a meaningful way is through commercials during the race. So obviously we experienced that up in Canada with TSN, although of course you and I both watch on F1 TV Pro, so we don't have to worry about advertisements. But if you are going to rely on your cable subscription or your satellite provider to pull the feed off of ESPN, do expect to see commercials. I don't think there's any two ways about that. The other thing that was interesting about this too is apparently Amazon had bid more money. They bid north of $100 million a year for the rights. And their plan was that they were going to put the races live on Amazon Prime, but that they were also demanding the right to sublease out the broadcast to TV networks. So they wanted to have the right to then take the the rights in those broadcasts and package Mm. up and sell them to US terrestrial television broadcasters. And F1 wanted no part of that whatsoever. So even though they were willing to pay a little bit more money, uh, F1 certainly didn't like the terms of that deal. So they went with ESPN, which is a known quantity. And one of the questions that's come up over the last week is, what is ESPN going to do now with the broadcast? And executives at ESPN have been clear that at this point, they have no intentions of changing the production, meaning that they'll continue to rely on Sky reporters that are in the pattern on the grid and they'll continue to run the sky tv broadcast and announcers although that could always change and i've been campaigning for tim haraney to take up the mic with danica patrick i think those two would be a great a great combo calling races but for the uh, short term at least they'll continue to rely on the global feed and sky sports for the commentary yeah, and just to put it into uh, to context as well, ESPN was uh, previously paying not even half for three years. What they're going to be paying now for one year of uh, TV rights, just to you know, for you know, it's 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 mind boggling. You go from fifteen million dollars for three years to you know seventy five on the low end for one year. So it's really skyrocketed in value. Anyways, time for another quick break. We'll be back in a moment and we're going to talk a little bit more about money and the fact that uh, Formula One teams are going to maybe get a little bit more of it in the the not too distant future. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right. Well, welcome back. And well, we've all been talking about inflation because no matter where you are or who you are, it has been a topic of maybe not daily discussion, but probably not too far from it. I think uh, the the numbers that came in here in Canada just uh, in the past week or so is what we saw, what was it, a 7.7% increase in inflation over the last uh, quarter of the year. And uh, I guess that was a, a fairly conservative uh, value because it seems like it's been a little bit more than that, but uh, the the point, at least in this discussion, is that it has also affected the that the Formula One teams were already in the cost cap era, but when things are just costing more to to purchase it's costing them a lot more to get to races to use transport and logistics and everything like that so they've been talking about this uh, for for quite well for for quite quite a bit of time now, Mark. So what's the update uh, on the latest? Yeah. The big update here is that these teams are feeling the pinch from an inflationary pressure perspective. And I think prior to the last couple of years, they just would have sucked it up and absorbed the cost. But the challenge now is all of these teams are functioning under a cost cap. So as their costs accelerate, these teams are approaching the cap more quickly than they expected. Or in some cases, they're projecting to go over the cap, which would put them into a penalty range, which might ultimately compromise their ability to compete for a championship. So a lot of the teams have been championing very hard with Formula One to get that cost cap increased. And their their argument is like, look, tooling is more expensive, labor is more expensive, materials to build the cars are more expensive, and most importantly, freight and shipping, the cost of freight and shipping have accelerated dramatically even since the beginning of the season. Now, not all teams feel this way. A lot of the smaller teams, including Alfa Romeo, Williams, and Haas are against any increase in the cap, arguing that, look, we, we're not even going to spend close to the cap to begin with. So even though there's a cap, there isn't really cost parity because there's no... F- there's no there's no floor. There's no minimum spending requirement for teams. So if a team like Alfa Romeo or Williams or Haas wanted to spend $100 million, they could. They would be at a competitive disadvantage, but they don't have to spend that. So a lot of the teams, McLaren, Aston Martin, Mercedes, William, or Mercedes, Ferrari, and Red Bull have been arguing that we need more money and we need relief because we're going to exceed the cap and then we're put into a penalty range and that could compromise our ability to compete for a championship. So I'm going to read a couple of notes here. It's a trans from AMUS, which of course is a huge German autosports journal. And a quote, a compromise is emerging in the dispute over an inflation allowance. Formula One is to pay out extra money to all teams, which would then not count towards the budget cap. 
However, the support, that money, would then be deducted from the distribution pie. So what we're saying is Formula One is going to advance teams some cash, which would otherwise be paid out at the end of the season through the championship prize money. So we're going to give you that money. You can spend it on your team this season and it doesn't count against the cap. And this is going to work for the big teams because it's going to give them a little bit of relief and it's going to work for the smaller teams because they're always going to sign up for a little bit of extra cash. Now, it's expected that that amount is either going to be the amount of either $3 million US or it's going to be 3% of $100 million, which would be about 4.2 million dollars in total. So a little bit of relief coming for the big teams. And again, this is something the small teams are going to sign up for because this isn't an injection of cash that I think they would be happy to take now rather than wait till the end of the season. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm glad to see that they uh, decided to do something about it because uh, the the number that uh, that I just threw out there was uh, we've seen an increase in, of 7.7% in inflation here in Canada. The numbers that was uh, thrown out the AMS article was about 6.2% average. So that those those are those are big numbers. Everybody's uh, feeling the pinch, and I love the idea that uh, that they're going to give them their share of the uh, of of the winnings, basically of the uh, the the earnings. Give it to them now. Let the, let them spend on it. So I mean, three percent of one hundred and forty million dollars, or the three million dollars. I mean, you know that that's a lot of money, and that's all going to help, um, you know, help all the teams so wherever they need it. And and again, this, this took a little bit of time to get sorted out, but compared to where the sport was five or six years ago, even definitely before Liberty took over, that this just would not have happened, <laughs> in my opinion. I mean, if if uh, you know who was still in charge, it would be just like, well, you know, if you can't pay the bills, yeah. that's not my problem it's just like figure it out uh either come to play or don't come at all so i'm glad to see that this has uh been uh sorted out okay let's uh move on to the next one and this is the story that um that uh, formula one is continuing their push to be a net carbon zero by 2030 so that is a a very uh you know lofty goal so this is going to be involving uh, things like a development of 100% sustainable use or sorry sustainable fuel slashing the use of single-use plastics and uh, reviewing travel and freight logistics and these are just a couple of things that formula one is uh, looking at just um, generally from they say from the you know high high level to try and become uh, net zero by uh, the the year twenty thirty. So these are pretty cool. What uh, what other things are they looking at, Mark? Yeah, it's an interesting and a very ambitious target, and it was introduced in 2019. And again, I think if Bernie was here, and you talk about Bernie a couple of minutes ago, I don't think that this is something that he would have necessarily been motivated or invested in doing. But it's cool that F1 ultimately has a net zero uh, ambition for 2030. I think if you look at the sport, oftentimes people criticize the cars themselves. But when you think about the environmental and the carbon impact of the series as a whole, it's far, far less the carbon emissions of the cars on the track. That is a fraction, a tiny fraction of the total emissions. A big chunk of this is the impact of logistics and shipping and transportation and simply getting all of the people that support the series and all of the people that support the broadcast 
podcasts around globally. So we'll talk about this in a couple of minutes, but obviously there's a big update on how the cars are going to be fueled for 2026, which is really, really exciting. But a couple of the big updates that Formula One were excited to announce is they've significantly reduced the carbon footprint through remote broadcast operations. Now, I don't want to give them a lot of credit to this. I think this was almost forced upon them because of COVID that I think most TV networks sure. ended up going to remote broadcast operations that it's just been kind of convenient to keep it there. Um, I think the other big one too, and we talked about this the last couple of weeks, is that the sport needs to regionalize its calendar. You know, it's going to be more difficult to get to net zero if you have 25 races instead of 17 or 18 or 19. But I think having regionalized races or a racing calendar and basically maybe potentially putting hubs within each one of those regions would help because they could get really strategic and tactical when it comes to shipping supplies and people and things like that. And then another thing that they are talking about looking into as well is how can we reduce the carbon associated with fans traveling to these races? And you know what? I think about the fact that you've traveled to Europe countless times to see Formula One races. That involves you getting on a flight, getting in a taxi, renting a car, and driving across Europe. And for me, that's getting on a flight, going to the Middle East, renting a car, and driving all over the desert. That there's a big carbon impact associated with people like you and me just going to a race. And I think one of the th things that they want to explore is, hey, how can we mitigate some of the impact of people even traveling to these races? So it's a nice, ambitious target. I'm super happy they're working towards it. It goes very much in hand in hand with their marketing that they started picking up last year about hybrid. We've been hybrid since 2014. I just, I don't think they've done, I, I don't think they've accomplished a lot of meaningful things yet, but that's not to say that there aren't a lot of meaningful things uh, in progress or in development. Yeah, but some of the cool things that they've they've done, like you said, maybe COVID uh, for kind of forced their hand a little bit when it came to uh, remote bro uh, broadcasting and things like that. But it also meant uh, that by having remote uh, broadcast, it meant that they were able to reduce the amount of uh, freight that they were sending to different races. They've also uh, redesigned uh, the, the 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 Formula One freight containers, which actually allows the uh, the, the freight to be transported cool. that's on awesome. more efficient and modern uh, aircraft. So that that's a plus. Uh, they are actually able to deliver a fully carbon neutral broadcast production at the British Grand Prix last year, and that's something that they hope to uh, repeat uh, this year. And uh, the lessons they learned at Silverstone last year, they're trying to apply for other races outside uh, the United Kingdom. So it's early days yet. They've done some things uh, right. Uh, they've uh, they're doing some things, uh, or they're still doing those uh, same things and looking towards uh, doing other things. So we'll wait and see. But uh, I, I like to see what they're doing and hope that they can uh, maintain it uh, and build on it. Okay, so oh, this one is a, a cool one. This is kind of one that uh, builds nicely on it. So Formula One is looking to having a completely all synthetic fuel by 2026. This is uh, also another part of their pledge to become uh, carbon neutral by the year 2030. And uh, this is going to be kind of walk hand in hand with the next uh, generation of hybrid engines, which will uh, be uh, debuted in 2026 as well. And only, uh, well, you know, we, we've talked about it before that it, it's good to see that they, I guess, was it late last year, mid last year, that they decided to really flex and promote the fact that they've had this V6 turbo hybrid power and they've had it for almost a decade. And it's really <clears throat> something that they haven't uh, promoted uh, very much. So it, it's something that even though 
obviously these engines are very, very complex. They're very, very expensive, but you know, it, it's something that they should flex on. It's something that they should be proud about. And uh, certainly it's going to be very interesting to see where the next generation of engines go and if they can make them greener and if they can still, and, and they manage to do that and still manage to output the same amount of power that they can generate now or with the, the normally aspirated engines that came before the turbo hybrid engines, I think that would just be, you know, I think that's something you really should flex on. And especially uh, if uh, there is that trickle down technology that uh, eventually, hopefully we'll see in our own cars one day. If you hear get there before it goes all electric anyways, right? (laughs) You hear people on occasion ask about, hey, when is F1 going to go electric? Why isn't an electric series? But if you talk to people within the Formula One establishment like Ross Braun, they're still strongly of the mind that there is a place and a need in this world for synthetic fuels. And certainly we're seeing governments like that of California and the Canadian federal government and governments throughout Western Europe that are mandating that all passenger car sales um, from 2035 onwards, for instance, be pure EVs, that they are forcing manufacturers to switch their fleets to purely electric vehicles. Well, that's still 13 years away. And you know, you and I live in a city with one of the highest proportions of electric cars in the world, which is Vancouver, British Columbia. And even here, where it feels like every second car on the road is a full EV or a hybrid, only 10% of new car sales last year were EV or hybrid. So even Hmm. here, where they are extremely common, they are still only 10% of the new car fleet that's deployed every single year. So there's some time here. Now, the other consideration, and and Ross Braun kind of won me over on this when he made this comment on the Beyond the Grid podcast a couple of years ago, he spoke to the fact that, look, you know what, sure, it makes sense for passenger cars to become EV or hybrid, but the reality is switching over tanker fleets, airline aircraft fleets, um, heavy industrial vehicles and machinery and trucks. It's incredibly complex or not, or perhaps even entirely prohibitive to f- switch that type of uh, infrastructure over to purely electric. Uh, I would say technology. So his point being that there's always going to be need and there's always going to be a place for synthetic fuel. And this is the next best thing. So in 2026, the cars are going to be fueled by synthetic fuels, which we expected this entire time. And I think that's a good thing. It also buys them another five, six, eight years of runway for them to, as you've talked about in the past, it buys them a little bit of time, lets them kick the can down the proverbial racetrack um, to build a strategy for the next decade after that. Yeah, and in the meantime, just to keep iterating on the current uh, exactly. generation of, of power units and and make them greener, and uh, you know, there, there's a lot that they can still uh, do with it. But I do think it's interesting when you look at some of the stats out there, because according to Formula One, I think it's only like one percent of like the the global road fleet is electric, and it's something that they want to help uh, promote and influence over the, uh, the, the 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 coming years. Because you, you kind of think, well are they kind of being architects of their own demise and uh, to, to a certain extent, because if, uh, you know, the internal uh, combustion engine were to disappear completely, what would that mean for formula one? You know, what would it do to the competitiveness of the cars? Because the, uh, the, uh, the electric power units just aren't there yet. I mean, I'm not going to hate on formula E at all because I mean, that's, you know, they've done wonderful, incredible things there. And just the, the way that that, that series has uh, really leaped forward and that how the technology has uh, grown and improved in, in a very, very short amount of time. But, 
yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just that uh, one question that's uh, out there. It's just like, when will Formula One make that shift to uh, fully electric uh, power units? And it's going to take a little bit of time. But uh, as Ross Braun so rightly says, there is going to be a need for internal combustion units somewhere in society. Because the thing is, uh, w- when it comes to like uh, tankers or, or trains or commercial uh, traffic, uh, like you say, it's it might just become completely cost prohibitive to try and convert them all to electric power units and you know it it just might not be practical like you say but you can help make them greener and that would be a great step in the interim until the technology you know catches up because sure i mean i i can imagine that uh, that that a freighter or one of these big tankers you see out in english bay there and just off of uh, vancouver they they must you know i'm sure they have like environmental controls of some uh, kind i can't imagine that they're just you know free to pollute whatever they want and just chuck out anything into into the air but the point is that how would you convert a ship of that size to like a, an electric power unit it just you know the the batteries would be huge they'd be ginormous and how would you charge them i mean there, there's all these just practical considerations but you know, maybe in the interim until that technology kind of catches up maybe there's a way to uh, you know clean the emissions when they come out of the exhaust systems on ships and planes or whatever but like i say there are ways to make them greener to make them more environmentally friendly and ultimately i think if uh, formula 1 can uh, if they can influence directly perhaps uh, they can be a good example and uh, you know things will develop on their own in parallel to what they're doing in formula 1 Okay, next story, and I'm going to let you take this one because this goes back to the Middle East, and I know that uh, that's obviously a part of the My world passion. that you have. <laughs> it's, it's, it's your passion, and this has to do with the McLaren and uh, Bahrain's uh, so- sovereign wealth fund, the Mumtalakat, I think uh, I said that uh, correctly, yeah. which has a 60% stake in McLaren. So why don't you take it from there? Because uh, you got a big grin on your face, and I don't want to steal your thunder, so uh, you go for it. No, so before I get started, the, the article that we're going to reference here is from a a wire. I guess it's a, a news company that kind of sends stories around the world that gets picked up by local uh, newspapers. I oh, don't Reuters. know how to- Reuters is a big one. Yeah. Okay. 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 Thank you because yep. I didn't know how to pronounce that, and I've actually said I've, I think I've said routers before. Is it Reuters, routers, or routers? Re- I've always called it Reuters. Okay, I'm going to go with that yeah. because I've certainly received feedback before that I've said it incorrectly. And I don't know what I was saying in the past, but <laughs> thank you for keeping me honest. Yeah, so the story here is, and this is a, an article that was published a couple of days ago, the Bahraini Sovereign Wealth Fund, which owns, to your point, 60% in the McLaren Group, is looking to potentially offer an IPO within the next two to three years. Now, of course, they came to own a majority share of this company because as a lot of our listeners probably know, this was a company that was hemorrhaging cash several years ago. And it was hemorrhaging cash both on the road car side of the business, because of course, McLaren produces, develops, and ships road cars. Not necessarily the road cars that you or I would be going out to buy, but they certainly produce sports cars and hypercars. Now, they also have the Formula One group. And it seems like if you look at the Formula One group in isolation, their finances have stabilized, especially with the influx of cash that they're getting from sponsorships and because spending in Formula One has been kind of managed by the cost cap. Now, the road car division is still hemorrhaging cash like crazy. I think they produce beautiful products, but the people that are buying them are saying they're 
probably not getting their money's worth, especially from a reliability perspective. Now, the thing that's interesting about this story is that Bahrain Sovereign Wealth Fund indicates that they effectively want to take their percentage of this business public by doing an initial public offering within the next two to three years. And of course, it probably wouldn't make sense to do so right now, given the type of market that we're about to enter, especially as global markets will probably see a recession. Two to three years certainly makes sense, but it also gives them a little bit more opportunity to write the ship on the road car side of the business. Now, the one thing that is interesting about this is that Bahraini Sovereign Wealth Fund had the opportunity, at least reportedly, to sell off this entire division to Audi and the Volkswagen Group within the past six months because Volkswagen through Audi was clearly sniffing around a purchase of McLaren. And of course, the thought was that they would integrate the road car division into their family of brands, use their existing drivetrains, powertrains, gearboxes, and switch gears to optimize the, the pricing and the costing of that brand. The Bahraini Sovereign Wealth Fund decided against it. It could have been a quick sale. They would have made some significant capital or made some significant money because they did pay a lot for their share. Um, And the Bahraini Sovereign Wealth Fund, I should note as well, pumps all of its earnings into the state of Bahrain. So this is a company whose responsibility is to invest in companies globally and take their earnings and pump them into the state, which is used for the national budget to pay for things like schools, highways, healthcare, defense, and things like that. But kind of interesting Hmm. that in essence, 60% of McLaren is owned by the state of Bahrain. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's still kind of fascinating the way that, uh, well, fascinating, but also a a little bit kind of sad the way that they kind of hit uh, like hard times uh, because, I mean, they, you know, they need all this investment. They sold off the MCT. But, yeah, you know, I would kind of hate to see it. um, Not that I have anything against the, 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 the VW group, but I still always kind of see McLaren as almost a little bit independent and i agree i sort of, totally you know, agree man yeah 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 I, I like i say i don't have anything against vw but just to sign to see them sort of like swallowed up in a big conglomerate like uh, that just uh wouldn't have been uh quite uh quite the same anyways let me time, just or, actually while we're oh, doing this ahead, i just ahead. want i just want to bring this up real quick because sure you, you had me think about something i want to bring up the current volkswagen brands so the current brands that fall within the Volkswagen Group, so within the Volkswagen Auto Group, boop, 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 boop. let's take a look here, because they have been absorbing countless brands. Sorry, guys, I'm just bringing up a current list. Ah, So the current brands within the Volkswagen brand, banner include Audi, Lamborghini, Ducati, Bentley, Porsche, Seat, Skoda, um, Volkswagen itself, and countless other industrial companies. It would be, to your point, it would have been a real shame to have seen McLaren just get gobbled up in there because at that point, it just becomes a matter of badge engineering, which is, hey, we're just going to stick your badge on a, on an Audi product or a Lamborghini product because there's so much of that engine sharing and badge engineering within these big companies. Like It wouldn't make sense to independently develop chassis and engines specifically for a McLaren, but hopefully they can be successful as an independent company. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's take uh, one final break. When we come back, I think it's time we should finally sit down and talk about the the British Grand Prix, which will start 
not in a matter of hours. Usually when we sit down and do the show on a Thursday night, uh, we're, we're usually just hours away from free practice when it comes to the European races. We're obviously doing the show a, a day early this week, so we're going to have to wait a day in between. But still, the British Grand Prix this weekend, which is one of my favorite races of the entire year. We're going to talk about that and a couple of other things in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. And just a couple of things here uh, before uh, we talk about uh, the, the the Grand Prix this weekend. First of all, Formula One is, or not Formula One, but there's going to be a Formula One scripted show featuring uh, Danny Ricardo, which is going to be an exclusive on Hulu. So this is uh, kind of uh, interesting. Maybe that's another reason why, uh, you know, Danny might stick around uh, with uh, McLaren. It'd be kind of awkward to do a, a show, Hulu series if uh, he wasn't there, but I'm being a, a little bit uh, silly and uh, facetious here. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, their, like, their, their whole storyline and everything that's uh, being you know, in relation to this program project is uh, really being kept uh, or kept under a tight veil of uh, secrecy but apparently now this is interesting apparently uh, Max Verstappen who was very staunch and pretty adamant uh, he wouldn't have anything to do with uh, Netflix's phenom drive to survive and of course uh, a, a large portion of uh, our listeners our community are what we call generation uh, drive to survive and uh, last year we didn't see anything of uh, Max Verstappen unless it was just stock footage uh, which which was nothing unusual for DTS because we saw that in season one when Ferrari and uh, Mercedes didn't uh, participate. So anytime we saw Lewis or Seb or Kimi or, or Bottas or anything of those two teams, it was just uh, stock footage. But apparently, uh, Max Verstappen says he will feature more heavily in the next season of uh, Drive to Survive, which will drop next spring after he had a, a meeting with the producer uh, or the producers of the series, uh, which uh, he had uh, been pretty pointed in the past saying that they basically dramatized a lot of stuff and kind of uh, really faked some of the rivalries and and things like that um it's produced by uh box to box films so who've done uh, a lot of really uh, brilliant work uh, in addition to uh, drive to survive the the senna documentary is uh, among them i think they've done one on ronaldo some soccer stuff i mean box to box is a, a soccer term but oh the the senna documentary uh, incidentally is back uh, back on netflix canada so it might be on uh, some of the other uh netflix uh um, you know, or Netflix on different uh, parts of the world as well. So check it out uh, and see if you have a Netflix uh, subscription. See if it's available wherever you're uh, listening, because uh, it's definitely one to watch. But, uh, anyways, I think this is kind of interesting that Max uh, might actually feature in Drive to Survive, and I wonder what his angle will be. Yeah, and I'm certainly interested in what compelled him to finally make that decision because right. especially given the fact that he won a championship last year, his absence was notable when we went back to revisit that series. And of course, it's not that there was any shortage of Red Bull personality that Christian Horner very much stars, but I'll be very curious to learn if we ever do why he suddenly pivoted. Maybe it was pressure within the Red Bull team that, look, you can become more marketable and our team can become more marketable if you partake in productions like this, but hopefully one day we'll find out. 
Yeah, 100%. Okay, Mark, uh, there is a couple other stories. Maybe we'll get back to it at the end here if we have a little bit of time, but we're already like, uh, you know, over an hour into this thing. We do have a race to, to talk about uh, this uh, this weekend. That is the British Grand Prix, which we've seen quite a bit of over the past uh, couple of years. Uh, what with COVID, we've seen them double up at uh, Silverstone for some of these uh, double headers. We've had some uh, pretty exciting races there, not just the last couple of years, but we've seen some real classics through the years at this uh, iconic uh, circuit. And I guess the big question on everybody's lips is after the, you know, the past half dozen races, which has been dominated uh, by uh, the, the Red Bull pair of Max Verstappen and Sergio Perez, who have won all of the last uh, six races in a row, is can anybody else win at Silverstone this weekend? I mean, the last, uh, the only other driver to win this year that isn't uh, Max or Sergio is Charles Leclerc, who won two out of the first three races in Bahrain and Australia. But since then, the season has uh, really turned around. And of course, when you look at uh, the constructors, when you look at the drivers' uh, championships and where drivers and teams seem to be trending, it's all going very much in Red Bull's way. So, Mark, what are a couple of things you're going to be looking for going into the British Grand Prix this weekend? I think the first thing that I'm really curious to see is what the, and this isn't even related to anything that's going to be on the track. I'm excited to see what the atmosphere is going to be like at, at this event. Obviously, last year in Austin, we saw a record crowd. We saw a huge turnout in Miami earlier this year. Canada had record attendance. Australia had record attendance. Now, this is an event that draws 140,000 people on Sunday every single year, or at least has through the domination, that dominating period of success that Lewis Hamilton has had. I'm very curious to see how they can amp that up even more. You know, I've been to Silverstone so many times, Silverstone, Silverstone, I'll alternate to keep both our American and our British audience happy and satisfied. But I've been there for (laughs) MotoGP when there's 90,000 people on a Sunday and it's raining. I've been there when it's 35 degrees Celsius on a Sunday and there's 140,000 people there. The atmosphere is electric either way, but by all accounts, it's going to be spectacular on Sunday. We could see upwards of 160 or 170,000 people in that track. Now, It is, for me, hollowed ground, and it's one of the most special places on earth. And I've got a few places. To me, Stanley Park in Vancouver is one of those places. Yas Marina and and Silverstone are absolutely amongst the most special places for me. And I think Silverstone is special because it is... It is hollowed ground. There's so much history there. The track itself is inexcusably exceptional. It is incredibly fast. It's very technical. The drivers love it. And when the aggregates in good condition, we should see fantastic racing. And then the other thing too is, and let me share the story. The first time that I ever went to a MotoGP race. And you you talk about the Formula One community in North America has historically been pretty small. The MotoGP community is microscopic. Like five years ago, if you met somebody that was into Formula One, you're probably going to come home and tell your partner because you're excited. You never meet somebody that's a MotoGP fan. So the first time I went to that event, there was a 
lady. It shouldn't actually, the gender doesn't matter, but there was full disclosure, an older woman sitting behind us and very unsuspecting that you think, you know, she's probably been dragged here by her grandkids. She sat there for 25 minutes talking about the suspension setup in, in the bike of <laughs> Valentino it. Rossi and explaining to her grandkids how that was going to be beneficial on the aggregate at Silverstone. But likewise, when we went there for Silverstone, when we went there for a Grand Prix in 2018, it's just, you're surrounded by people that are not only passionate about the sport, but they know every dimension of the sport. And that doesn't make you a better fan. That doesn't make you a worse fan, but it is something special. And I, I've said many times that motorsports are deeply embedded in the societal DNA of the United Kingdom, whether it's MotoGP, whether it's um, touring car racing, and especially Formula One. So it is a very, very special place. And I think the track is exceptional. Now, in terms of the storylines, I think for me, one of the big things I'm going to be looking for is the reliability factor, especially from Ferrari, because if we go see a Red Bull 1-2 or a Red Bull 1-3, we can start having a meaningful conversation about, hey, when could they mathematically eliminate their competition and lock in some of these championships, right? Like this is race number 10 of a 22 race calendar. We're halfway through we could start having a meaningful conversation about how quickly could they wrap up these championships after the summer break. Now, hopefully, hopefully some of those reliability gremlins that Ferrari have been dealing with have been vanquished and hopefully Mercedes as well can deliver some meaningful upgrades and they can help chip away at some of those points. But my fear is that Red Bull is going to surge to the front. They have a very, very fast car that has a significant amount of pace and they really do a great job of managing tire degradation or degradation, which can be a problem at this track. Those are some of the things that I'm going to be curious to see. What about you? Well, for me, uh, one of the big questions that uh, that I'm going to be uh, looking at, in addition to, like you say, the reliability of a Ferrari, because they, they obviously have a car that's uh, got some speed, it's got some pace, but it's got issues, right? And I think uh, when, when you uh, pull Mercedes into this conversation, I think at best they probably have uh, hopes of maybe a podium if uh, things uh, go their way. I mean, under normal circumstances, I don't see them winning this race purely on uh, their own merits because the W13 just isn't there the, this year. But that's where it gets interesting because if you look now at the weather forecast for the weekend, if you look at uh, Saturday afternoon, forecast to be about 18 degrees Celsius or 65 degrees Fahrenheit at uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and they're predicting a 35 to 40% chance of rain. Now, you go over to Sunday afternoon, they're looking at about 67 degrees Fahrenheit or 19 degrees uh, Celsius, also about a 40% chance of rain during the the, uh, the hours that the race is going to be on. And let's uh, not forget that this race itself, let me just put up, pull up the stats here, is a uh, 306.2 kilometers long or 190 and a quarter miles 52 laps so it's a fairly long race and we have seen damp tracks there before damp races there before and wet races i mean you said a couple of minutes ago you've been to silverstone when it's 35 degrees centigrade it's not going to be that this weekend my nope. friend we've seen some warm races there especially last couple of weeks or sorry past couple of years pardon me it's not going to be this weekend so rain obviously is a bit of an equalizer it uh, takes away that big advantage that some of the faster teams have and the drivers that may not have the most competitive car sometimes 
can do some special things because uh, those that, uh, that that can take a car by the scruff of the neck, for lack of a better term, and can really finesse it around the, the, the circuit can sometimes do some pretty uh, amazing things. We know Lewis is good in the wet. We know Max is good in the wet. So it would uh, it would be interesting. I mean, go back to Imola last year, uh, just how everybody was skating off and slipping off the track. So, you know, we're always due a wet race here and there. I mean, we, we saw it in Canada during qualifying the, just uh, two weeks ago. But that would certainly give the potential to really flip this race upside down, the entire weekend upside down, should the weather be anything less than uh, than, than optimal, right? Definitely. I should add as well, and we talked about this last week, that we have a great listener that's at, we actually have many listeners at this race, but Micah Boyce has made the made the made the trip all the way from the United States. Of course, Micah is responsible for the fantastic play in and play out music that we have on this podcast. So Micah, if you're listening, uh, we are both incredibly jealous, but also simultaneously (laughs) happy that you get to experience your first Grand Prix and you get to experience it at somewhere as magical as Silverstone. For your sake, I I hope it's dry. But again, for everybody at home, I don't mind a little bit of moisture during qualifying and a little bit of moisture during the Grand Prix because it can function sometimes as as a bit of an equalizer and we can see really talented drivers shine. But like you said, it's not necessarily the most technical track in terms of the sheer number of corners, 52 laps, 5.9 kilometers distance. The lap record is 127.097 for Max Verstappen. The other thing that we didn't mention, and we probably should have brought this up is last year, the championship, should I say it didn't fall apart, but the tenor of the championship really, really pivoted last year after Silverstone that we had seen a really tight rhetoric really changed. Yeah. Yes. When Lewis and Max came together at the beginning of that Grand Prix, the tone of the championship and the narratives and the way it was discussed and the language that was used. And if there wasn't a really tribal feel to the championship before that point, the the entire community kind of split into two camps and it became much more volatile and i was not necessarily a fan of it and i thought that was really an unfortunate moment in the championship but i think it'll be interesting to see max and lewis back at silverstone for the first time since that happened yeah absolutely and i mean at times it got a little bit nasty after that incident uh, as well i just wanted to point out uh, too that uh, i mean so rightly you mentioned uh, max and lewis but lewis uh, you know holds the record at silverstone he's won it eight times in Unreal. his career which is a record i mean that's three more times than uh, legendary jim clark and alan Prost. they won it five times each nigel mansell won it four times Three-time winners include Jack Brabham, Nicky Lauda, and the equally legendary uh, Michael Schumacher. And uh, one name that pops up there, it's maybe not a bit of a surprise, but uh, sometimes kind of flies under the, 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 the radar a little bit. Mark Webber won the British Grand Prix twice in 2010 and 2012. Ferrari is the winningest uh, constructor there, winning it 16 times. McLaren's won the British Grand Prix 14 times. Williams, yes, they have won races before in the past. They've won it 10 times. Mercedes, nine 
nine times. They won it in 1955, and then they had to wait until 2013. And then they won it uh, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, 19, 20, and 21. <laughs> so the last decade has been all uh, Mercedes there. But the last uh, three years, the last three runnings, Lewis Hamilton won it in 19, won it in 20, and won it in 21 as well. I mean, well, I mean, it's basically been Lewis every year since uh, 2014. The, the outlier there was Sebastian Vettel, who won the British Grand Prix for Ferrari in 2018. But I'll just British add Grand a personal tenor. Or personal flavor to that sure. so so lewis wins in 2008 that was the year of his first championship his second year at formula one so he wins in 08 he doesn't win again at silverstone for six years and then he runs off seven and eight years now in 2018 when he lost to sebastian vettel i was at that race and i was there for qualifying and he took pole and i will say this the ground shook my friend the ground shook the 120 130,000 people there the ground shook and it was unlike anything cool. i've ever cool. experienced now the only reason he didn't ultimately win that race is cuz he was spun by by uh Kimi Raikkonen on the first lap, he ended up in 20th place and spent the rest of the race carving through the field, ultimately finished P2 because there was a point where his teammate Valtteri Bottas couldn't keep Seb behind him at all. Seb ran off for the win, but it was still a heroic finish for Lewis, but just unfortunate that uh, Kimi spun him on that uh, second corner of the first lap. Yeah, remember it well. But also, I just want to mention, too, that the uh, British Grand Prix has been going for a very, very long time. The very first uh, British Grand Prix was held way back in 1926 at uh, Brooklyn's in Weybridge in Surrey. I've been to Brooklyn's. Part of the bank track still exists. They got a really cool museum there. It closed in 1939, and unfortunately, they never ra uh, raced there again. But if you go up onto the old banking on uh, the old Brooklyn's uh, track there, it is pretty cool. It is really, really really steep and you still see that in some places like Monza you'll still see some like the old parabolica curve where it's uh, it almost looks like a you know a velodrome or something like that uh, other places that uh, we've seen it has also been at Aintree was also at uh, Brands Hatch which is also a very uh, well-known uh, circuit as well but uh, British Grand Prix has been held at uh, Silverstone since uh, 1987 but you know Mark I, I think as we start to kind of draw things to a close here I think that um, you know it's going to be difficult for me to really kind of buck the trend here. So I think unless something really dramatic happens with the weather, I, I just, I, I think Red Bull is just too strong. I know that we, uh, we saw Sergio retire a couple of weeks ago in Canada with that hydraulic issue and mechanic or mechanical issues have been a bit of a problem for Red Bull this year. They just haven't been as big of a problem for them as they have been for Ferrari. That's why I'm going to give them the edge uh, this weekend. I think that Max is just driving too good right now to, to really bet against him. But I wouldn't put uh, it beyond the realm of uh, possibility. I mean, the thing is uh, with the Mercedes, they, they always seem to get their strategy and their tactics right. So I, I wouldn't count out a podium for, for Lewis or George, but I might just give, uh, I'd say I give George uh, the, like a bit of a, you know, the call him the favorite on that just because he's had better results than Lewis uh, so far this year but this is Silverstone Lewis has owned this track for almost a decade so I think if he's going to be motivated or find some performance somewhere it's going to be at uh, Silverstone but I mean other than that I mean 
sure, do they take a, a one-two for a Red Bull this weekend? Do Ferrari turn around? There's a lot of big questions there, but somehow I think it's just going to be more of the same with what we've seen for the past month and a half, two months. I don't know you agree or disagree with that. I think I agree. Obviously, the predominantly British media would love to see they would love nothing more to see a Russell or a Hamilton podium to get a, a British driver on that podium. Sure. It's obviously sure. been a bit of a it's been a bit of a drought recently, but I think that would be a nice story. But I agree with you that I just from a an actuarial perspective, from an, an analysis perspective, I just I can't bet against Red Bull that the package, despite the fact that they had some fuel cell issues early on, and those were all with standard parts, they weren't necessarily internally developed parts. They just had to run a bad luck. I just I I don't think they've really stepped a foot wrong since then. And Max is in top form. My suspicion, my prediction is that Max scores his first race win in Silverstone in front of a record crowd on this coming Sunday. And they firmly continue to build on both their constructors and their driver's championship title. I I think Ferrari will probably see better reliability. Um, And to your point, maybe Mercedes at best scores a podium, but I see no reason why you would bet against Red Bull at this point. Yeah, it's really, really uh, difficult uh, to do so. But that's why I'm kind of hoping for a bit of rain over the course of the weekend. I mean, it certainly shook things up in qualifying at uh, at the Canadian Grand Prix in Montreal two weeks ago. And I certainly think uh, it wouldn't be out of place, especially if we we're kind of hoping to, to keep this championship uh, interesting uh, going forward. And uh, just before we wrap it up here, it's a good time just to uh, go down and get a, just a bit of a refresher here how the championships are looking in the uh, 2022 constructor standings. It is a Red Bull racing on top with 304 points over Ferrari in second with 228 points. Mercedes, 188 points for third. Uh, McLaren, fourth in the constructors with 65 and Alpine rounding out the top five with 57. Over on the driver's side of the uh, world championship is Max Verstappen from Red Bull leading the way with 175 points. That is quite a big margin of a lead over his teammate Sergio Perez, who has 129 only three points ahead of Ferrari's Charles Leclerc, who's 126. Mercedes's George Russell has 111 points. Carlos Sainz, the second Ferrari driver, 102. And Lewis Hamilton, who we always extend the benefit of the doubt to include in the top five, even though he's sixth, being that he's Lewis Hamilton and a seven-time world champion, who has a very respectable 77, but somewhat underwhelming amount if you're Lewis Hamilton, obviously used to being much further up in the driver's championship than where he currently is anyways mark i think that's a a good place uh, to leave it there i'm sure you have uh, something just to remind the listeners of uh, before we uh, park it for another night so uh, why don't you uh, take it away before i sign us off as always i will beg i will plead i will ask kindly if you like this show and if you've listened to this point i would assume you probably do it would mean the world to both of us we would be honored if you could go on to spotify if you could give us a rating if you use apple Podcasts, if you could give us a rating and a little review a little blurb a little taste of how you feel about our show it would sincerely mean the world to both of us. And then finally, if you want to connect with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Scuderia F1 pod. I do apologize to everyone at home. I'm a lot. I'm a fairly long way behind in the DMS right now. Oh, the music's on. 
you're you're you've got the cane you're pulling me off the stage so with that <laughs> rating a review we would love it follow us on twitter and i apologize i'm behind with the dms but i promise i'll get caught up on this canada day long weekend yeah, sorry about that. I got a little bit uh, trigger happy here. But uh, again, thank you so much for that. And you can also send us an email at scooterf1pod at gmail.com. That's it. That's a wrap for the show this week. We'll be back on Sunday night to, to recap the show. Until then, enjoy the race. And we'll talk to you again very, very soon. Bye for now.